The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 13 again. John chapter 13. The concept of love is, is familiar to everyone. Everyone knows something of love, something of the word love, something of the concept of love. But that concept is not always defined, and it's not always clear as well. For example, listen to this list. This came right out of my own heart biography, okay? I love salmon. I mean, I really like salmon. Anytime, any day, anywhere, if I were locked on a desert island with one food group for the rest of my life, it would be salmon. I love barbecue, and it's a good thing to live in Kansas City when you love barbecue. I love warm, crispy cream donuts. It's got to be a part of the millennial kingdom food. I love sunsets. I love Africa, and I love New Zealand. I love strong, unsweetened, stain your teeth just to look at it, iced tea. I love fountain pens. I love books. I love history. I love knives. I love the study of outer space. I love backpacking and hiking and the woods. I love to hunt and fish. And I love Kim. And I love my sons. After a list like that, do you see why the concept of love is not always exactly clear? Does love mean the same thing? I mean, I love iced tea and I love Kim. How can you put those together? Well, only when you have iced tea with him. That's the measure of God's grace. But when we come to the love of God, now we're introduced to something entirely beyond our categories, entirely beyond our experience, entirely beyond our understanding, but entirely within our grasp. John 3.16 is the most beloved and known verse in the world. It's no wonder it is about the greatest lover and the greatest love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I just want to make sure you know it. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have what kind of life? Now I found the King James and the New American Standard people right there. Everlasting or eternal life. Life that lives forever. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it even goes deeper than that and informs us of God's actual being, his ontology, as philosophers call it. In 1 John 4, 16, we find out something about God, something about his essence. We find out what? God is love. I love, in quotation mark, the beloved hymn by Frederick Lehman, The Love of God. Let me just recite some of those lyrics for you. It's incredible lyrics, incredible. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, the guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever endure the saints and angels' song. Second verse says, When hoary times shall pass and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. 
But the reason I wanted to recite this hymn is really to get to the third verse. The third verse has been by many uh, hymnologists referred to as the greatest lyric in any hymn ever written outside of Scripture. I remember hearing John MacArthur's uh, story of talking to, uh, to Bill Gaither, who uh, might be uh, uh, the most uh, knowledgeable of all contemporary hymnologists today. And he asked uh, Bill Gaither, what, what is the greatest lyric you've heard written? And he again pointed to this one verse. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. To write the love of God, that phrase, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. If the ocean were all of ink, we wouldn't have enough ink to talk about God's love. So if God became a man, you would expect to see the greatest man and the greatest love demonstrated by that man, would you not? That's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. And the proof of that is here in John 13, verse 1. In this one simple verse, we find the proof of his deity and the demonstration of the greatness of his love. To borrow a line from Mr. Lehman's hymn this morning, we're going to try the impossible. We are going to make an effort at draining the ocean dry to write the love of God by looking at the love of the incarnate God in Jesus Christ. If you want a title, we're just going to try to drain the ocean dry to look at the love of Christ. Now, as we've been looking at for the last few weeks, John 13, 1 through 17, 26 contains what Jim Boyce calls the best known and most beloved words of religious instruction ever uttered by any religious teacher, end quote. This is the upper room discourse. This is the final night, Thursday night, before Jesus would be crucified on that afternoon the next day. This is his last time with his men. This is the most precious and intimate conversation he's had with them in the three years of their relationship. It's not hard to see why. This is Jesus giving final instructions to his disciples on the eve of his death. In the first verse, John gives us the context really for understanding the rest of the five chapters. He gives us the understanding, high altitude approach at understanding what we need to understand to understand what Jesus wants us to understand. In other words, this is context. Uh, tonight we're going to study what it means to study the Bible, and one of the things we're going to talk about is context. If you're, in a, if you're a, dealing with real estate, the, the, the number one, number two, and number three most important parts of real estate are what? Location, location, location. And the same thing is true in biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. This is the on-ramp that John pens so that we can understand the context of what's actually going on inside Jesus' mind for the rest of these five chapters. Now, just a little footnote about the, the, the narrators of Scripture. The narrators of Scripture are inspired in a way that, um, uh, that, that boggles the mind. The narrators of Scripture actually have a, an inspired omniscience. They don't have it any other time, but when they're writing, what do you mean by that? They actually know what people are thinking. 
John actually tells us what's going on in Jesus' heart and mind. He's going to do that over and over throughout these five chapters. He gives us insight into what the Son of God was doing, thinking. When we get to chapter 16, even feeling as he approached saying goodbye to these men. So what do we find out when he gives us this peek into Jesus' mind? Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When we look at this passage, we can discover together two insights into Jesus' resolved disposition. Two insights into Jesus' resolved disposition. These are two navigational points. These two issues that John is going to outline for us, what Jesus knew and how Jesus loved, function as the rudders to direct the rest of the understanding of these five chapters. The first insight into Jesus' resolved disposition is his traumatic knowledge of his death. Number one, his traumatic knowledge of of his death. Now, before the feast of the Passover, we looked at that in some detail last week as we studied this is Thursday night in the upper room. This had to be a, a, an incredible atmosphere. I, we'll, we'll get into this more when we get into the foot washing because it was a very awkward kind of setting. The disciples knew something was up. They'd never seen Jesus act like this before. They had never heard the urgency in voice like, his voice like this before. They had never heard the depth of his, um, his instruction that he was about to leave like this before. Oh, he had hinted at it and he talked about it. We'll see that in just a minute. But this was a full-blown, I'm about to leave you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be alone, but I won't be here. And I have the a sneaky suspicion that if you'd taken a video of the eyes around that room, these disciples were in, in shock. They, they, they were thinking entirely other categories. Where can we sit when you're on the throne? Where, what, what can I rule over? Where's my place? Jesus, here's this critical, look at the text. Jesus knowing. The Greek word is oida, the the, the tense is he always knew. Jesus having the background of knowing. Jesus with the trajectory of knowing. Jesus already knowing. And the word means to know something for certain. Absolute bedrock certainty. Now we need to pause here at this simple statement about our Lord's knowledge. What did Jesus know? It said Jesus knowing. Well, look at the immediate context in this chapter. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. Full awareness of who he was, full awareness of what his mission was, full awareness of where he was on the time frame, on the calendar of that great purpose he came to do and accomplish to save sinners from God. He knew. John 13, 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Now, th this is an interesting construction. He knew the one betraying him. Judas was the one spoken of here. Judas is in the room. 
Judas has already set in motion the betrayal. He knew the one, it doesn't say who would or who did, he knew the one who was at that moment betraying him. He knew what was going on outside of the room. John 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. I know who are mine, he says. This is Jesus' omniscience. It's one of the most significant proofs of his deity. Just for a moment, and we're going we're gonna to have to grease up the, the spines of our Bible because we're going to flip around a little bit this morning just to get some context. Look back at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. What does Jesus really know? John chapter 2, verse 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing signs and the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. What does that mean? He knew everyone's name? Well, of course, but it goes further than that. Verse 25. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, why? He knew what was in man. A lot of dimensions and levels of that. He knew the depravity of man. He knew what was in the man's heart. When a rich young ruler came, he knew exactly what was in his background. When a woman at a well came, he knew what was in her background. When he found Nathaniel and when he found uh, uh, Peter, he knew exactly where they came from. He knew their history. He knew their hearts. This is no ordinary man. This is God in flesh. Now you say, well, what, is, what does this mean, omniscience? And what, what happens in Philippians 2? This is where we get to wade in the deep end of the pool and walk on the thin ice of theology. That God became a man in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, not 50-50, 100-100%. So what does that mean? Well, Philippians 2 tells us he set aside the use of some of his divine attributes in order to walk and talk and demonstrate, demonstrate faith for us, as Hebrews says. He was our chief example of living by faith. Does that mean that Jesus was less God? No, it just means he didn't use all of his attributes at the same time. He set them aside the kenosis in Philippians 2. He, he set those aside in order to be humbled as a man, and humbled to the point of death, and even worse than that, death as a criminal, and worse than that, death as a criminal on a Roman cross. Still, Jesus was omniscient. He knew all things, especially the timetable of his own death. Now, this is important when his knowledge is applied here in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to his father. That's what he was, he, he was focusing his omniscience and his knowledge on. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He didn't uh, uh, get arrested. He wouldn't be arrested in a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, wow, I didn't see that coming. Now, this is interesting, the term his hour. It's critical to understand. It's not the first time he's talked about this inevitable hour that had come to the passion of his suffering and death. John 2, 4, Jesus said to the, the woman, woman, what does this uh, have to do with us? This is Mary, his mother. My hour has not yet come. She said, Jesus, we have a problem. We, we've run out of wine. We're at this wedding. We need some help. And Jesus says, what, do you want me to tell everybody who I am right now? 
My hour has not come. It's not time for me to be glorified. And in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, you're going to see this theme over and over. Now is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Instead of glorified and looked at sitting on a throne, which is what everyone expects, he was glorified by his death on the cross, followed by his resurrection and his subsequent sitting on the throne. John 7, verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. John 8, 20. These words he spoke at the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him, even though he was causing a ruckus. No one grabbed him. No one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Jesus actually controlled the moment of his arrest. They wanted to arrest him over and over. At one point, he just kind of disappeared and slipped through the crowd. No one was going to bring Jesus to trial one moment before the week of the Passover when he was to be crucified as a substitute for the sins of those who would believe. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has now come. This was just a few verses before 13. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look back one uh, chapter in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, Jesus says. What shall I say? Father, save me from which hour? This hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood and heard it were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying no, and an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate what kind, the specific kind of death by which he was to die. If you look ahead, by the way, at the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and I just want to confess to you, I can't wait to get to John 17. Jesus, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, what's the very first thing he prays in the moment of his, of his greatest need for that Trinitarian fellowship, in the moments of his greatest instruction in teaching the disciples about his intimacy and prayer with the Father? What's the first thing he prays about? Father, the hour has come. This was no accident. He's on divine time. It's interesting to me how John describes Jesus' death as he, as he recalls it, as he writes about Jesus understanding the cross. Verse 1, back in chapter 13, he says, it's time for him to depart out of this world to the Father. Wouldn't you just say die? No, it's time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That's a theme that's going to come back over and over. Look at verse 3. He had come forth from God and was going back to God. You can keep going through this discourse. Look at John chapter 14. Verse 12, this is a really important theme. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works I do, he will also do greater works than these. He will do because I go where? To the Father. Verse 28, you heard that I said it to you. I will go away. I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced 
because I go to the Father. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Where's that? Back to the Father. Going back to him who sent me, none of, none of, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if, I do not, if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This idea of going away, going away, going away. Verse 10, we can go on and on. Concerning uh, righteousness, because I go to the Father. Verse 17, the same idea. He's going to the Father. He's going back to the Father. It's interesting how Jesus and John, both in the recording of this passage and in the articulation of Jesus' understanding of his own death, it's not death and that's it. It's he's returning to the Father. He's going to the Father. He's going to heaven. I can't resist, but John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, all of us know what it's like to hear someone pray, and they pray something a little strange, and you look up at someone else in the room to kind of furl your eyebrows and go, what was that? Can you imagine what the disciples must have thought when they heard Jesus pray to the Father this? I mean, pretend like you've never heard this before, and Jesus prays this. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before creation, before the world was. Who prays like that? Only one can pray like that. The fact that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all include very clear references to Jesus predicting with great specificity his death has been a lightning rod for liberal theologians and form critics over the last two centuries, the fact that Jesus actually predicts his death with specificity and certainty has been what's caused a lot of critics to say, see, the Bible isn't trustworthy. He could not possibly have known his death in those kind of details. For example, in 1921, form critic Rudolf Bultmann summarized all the scholarly opinion of his day when he said, quote, the predictions of the passion and resurrection of Jesus have long been recognized as secondary constructions of the church, end quote. In other words, what he was saying is people saw what happened at the end of Jesus' life and went back and put words in his mouth before that happened so he would look like it wasn't a surprise. That's just blasphemous to the word of God. Jesus knew exactly, exactly what was coming let me just give you a little tour through Mark because Mark has the most references and there are parallels uh, in all the other synoptics and in John to these accounts, but just you can just listen. Mark 8, 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, those are the three tri trials that he had, and be killed and after three days rise again. How, how specific is that? Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And whenever, when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. How specific is that? And then we read this a few weeks ago, but I just think it's important contextually to get our minds around again, Jesus' specificity as well as, as, well as the disciples again. In Mark 10, 
Verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Remember the context. They knew the hostility was in in Jerusalem. They knew that the scribes and the Pharisees and and the chief leaders of all those groups were there. They had it out for Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. They basically had had a price on Jesus' head. They wanted him dead. They knew that there was going to be a great grandstand of people to watch the confrontation between Jesus and all these religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, the busiest time in Jerusalem of the year. And Jesus coming up from the area just north of the Sea of Galilee, down in Jericho, begins walking up the 13-mile road toward Jerusalem. They were going on the road up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. I just can't get beyond that phrase. No fear, no intimidation. They were amazed, and they should have been. And those who followed were fearful, and they should have been. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I mean, how clear is this? Saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now he gives even more specificity. The Jews couldn't kill Jesus, so they'd hand him over to the Roman authority, to Pontius Pilate. He's that specific about it. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him. Now he talks about the scourging. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, I mean, just stop right there. That's that's enough to just say, Jesus, can we just, can we stop on this road from Jericho up to Jerusalem? Can we just stop and talk about that for a minute? Really? You, this is going to happen to you? These people, this this detail, really? How do you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen to us and the disciples? All the disciples. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus while Jesus was saying this and and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Do you hear the selfishness in that? He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant to us that we may sit on your right, one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, And by the way, when they said your glory, they weren't thinking of heaven. They were thinking of Jerusalem where Jesus was going to be the king. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism which I am being baptized? And they said, we are able. They were thinking, can you go up there and help me win these arguments and be the king and you can be my servants? And they said, we're able. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This means you're going to die. They said to him, we're able. And Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. You know what, guys? You have no idea, but you are going to experience martyrdom and death just like me. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, the association. But to sit on my right and left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They're like, what are those bozos doing? They're they're out talking about where they're going to sit. Now, it's speculation, but why were they upset at them? Because they were so interested in the events of Jesus' death? They don't indicate that. My suspicion is that they they were probably jealous that they weren't going to get to have these good seats. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that these who are recognized as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
They're great men, exercise authority over them, but this is not the way among you. Their whole concept was, put me in charge. And they learned that from the culture. He says, that's not the way of leadership in the kingdom of God. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even me, Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. He knew them all. He knew exactly what was going on. He's basically saying, man, I just told you the path to greatness. It's death to self. And you're trying to get seats of prominence? You're approaching me. You're approaching the kingdom. You're approaching the, 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 the nearness that I have to God with, with self-personal benefit. And before we throw them under the bus, we all tend to do that. Just listen to our prayers. They need to be sanctified even more. And I think the more we pray, the more they can and will be sanctified. He's saying, no, no, leadership is servanthood. Demonstrating his omniscience. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He even knew the detail of the fact that the Jews could not ultimately kill him and they would have to turn him over to Gentile authorities. He knew even that detail. Jesus was and is omniscient, knowing all. Now listen, the omniscience of God and the omniscience of Jesus is either your greatest comfort or is your worst threat. If you know Christ, if you know God in Christ, if you believe the gospel, the omniscience of Jesus is a wonderful thing. He knows, he sees, he cares. If you don't, it's your greatest threat because he knows and he sees If you don't know Christ, this is the day to run to him. The one who knows all, who knows you, who knows your heart, who knows that you would never in your own, on your own, from your own heart, choose the right way. Choose to respond to him. But if his love is compelling, run to Christ. Because of his greatness, run to his cross and receive his sacrifice. That leads us perfectly into Jesus' next insight, the next insight that John gives us into Jesus' resolved disposition. We saw his traumatic knowledge of his death. He knew all the traumatic details. Secondly, his undying love for his men. His undying love for his men. The last last part of verse 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, there's that world and in the world, out of the world, the next world, this world, contrast again. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. First thing we need to ask is, who are these people who are called his own? He loved his own. Who are, who are his own? Well, the immediate context obviously means he's talking about the disciples. Now, this is what's overwhelming to me. There's no qualification or footnote given here about Judas. Doesn't say he loved the eleven. It says he loved his own. Don't miss the fact that that included everyone sitting at the table. Even the traitor and the treacherer rejected the love that Jesus had demonstrated to him for three years and was demonstrating to him there at that table. He still, in his treachery, turned Jesus in. 
He knew all. And he knew Judas. And he offered Judas his love. And Judas sought his own. He wanted to gain silver at the expense of turning Jesus in. Again, go back to this phrase. John tells us that he loved his own in the world, the place uh, uh, where Jesus was now, not the place out of this world that Jesus says he's going to. It's also an indication of what motivated John to record these chapters. He wants us to know what it means to see Jesus loving his own who are in the world. Why? Because you and I are still where? In the world. This is instruction divinely intended for us to eavesdrop on. He loved them to the end, it says. This instruction is to his disciples and and to us about living in the world this side of heaven. Look at the extent. He loved them to the end, telos in the Greek, in full measure, fully, completely. It indicates that as Jesus nears the cross, as he nears his death, as he anticipates his suffering, there was no diminishing in his focus, his attention, and his love for his disciples. There was no sense of selfishness on the one who is about to be executed. Like I said last week, if I knew I was going to be arrested in a few hours and killed tomorrow, I would be pretty selfish. I would be making things right. Jesus had nothing to make right with anyone. I'd be spending time with my my friends and family. Well, he will see his mother from the cross tomorrow. But tonight was for his men. He knew perfectly well that his disciples were about to shamefully, shamefully and wickedly and heinously and unbelievably forsake him in just a few hours. Just as Zechariah says, you strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. He'll leave here in John 18 and go to Gethsemane. When he's there, he'll be arrested. And when he's arrested, Peter has a final bout of bravery with Malthus. Remember, he tries to take his head off and only gets his ear. And then uh, Peter, in his bravery, ran, warming himself by a fire. Hey, aren't you, aren't you that guy with Jesus? Psh, not me. Hey, a little girl asked him, aren't you the one with Jesus? No. And it says he began to, to curse, to use curse words to prove he wasn't with the righteous one. Here's the deal. Jesus, he does that three times before the night's over. This night that we're sitting at right now. Jesus knows all that, and he loves him anyway. Even their vocal leader would deny him three times, and he loved them anyway. He has heard their cluelessness walking up to Jerusalem. He knows their their, uh, passion for prominence. He knows they're they're ignoring his uh, specific predictions about his death. And as we move through this, these, these, this discourse, it's going to get worse. You're going to see them still like asking questions that if they really understood this, they wouldn't have asked. You got to wonder after, after John recorded this, you know, um, if they were reading the Gospel of John and going, man, we were clueless. Yes, Jesus loved these men, and he loved them authentically, and he loved them as an example to show how he loves. Jesus loves to the end. He doesn't have a fickle love. He doesn't have an impatient love. He doesn't have a love that 
that might be here today and might not be here tomorrow. How do we know that? He bears with our countless inconsistencies. Can you imagine the inconsistencies in yours and my life that Jesus continually, daily, not only sees and knows about, but Romans 8 says that he's making intercession before God on our behalf. He, as he's praying for us, he's seeing these things, and he still loves us. He forgives again and 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 again. How many times have you confessed a sin over and over and over and over again only to meet in that prayer the amazing forgiveness of a loving Savior who loves to the end? He doesn't cast us aside even in our disloyal moments and seasons. You ever chickened out or wimped out in a witnessing opportunity? Well, don't think, oh, that's it. Jesus threw the talent on me. How about Peter's witnessing opportunities the night of, uh, uh, of uh, his betrayals? He didn't do so well, did he? But what did he find? He found forgiveness. At the end of John, we'll, we'll look at it a little later in the series, he, he's able to articulate back to Jesus three times that he loves him. His love is simply indescribable and unlike any love that you and I have ever experienced. Romans chapter 5, you know it very well. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet, we were sinners and he loved us. And the whole analogy there is someone might love or die or sacrifice for someone who they respected or liked. God doesn't love like that. He loves enemies. It's us. Ephesians 3.19, just listen. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I love that. It surpasses knowledge. You want to sit around and do a calculation on how Jesus loves and figure that out? Well, get used to refilling your fountain pen because you're going to drain the ocean dry. Eighteen eighty-eight. Charles Ross wrote, Jesus will never reject any servant because of feeble service and weak performance. Is that not encouraging? Jesus will never reject any servant because of feeble service and weak performance. Just ask Peter. Those whom he receives, he always keeps. Those whom he loves at first, he loves at last. Jesus has never broken up with anyone. John 10 says, those that I love, no one can pluck them from my hand. No one. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and not one of those who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I won't cast any out that come to me. So here's the question. Have you experienced, have you tasted, have you enjoyed, have you basked in the love of God in Christ? Do you know his love for you? Do you have love for him? In his book, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ, Puritan Thomas Vincent wrote this. This is one of my favorite quotes. I, I probably read this, I don't know, it probably comes up once or twice a month. He says, the discovery, this discovery of Christ 
understanding God in Christ, believing the gospel. This discovery of Christ dispels clouds from the mind. It exhales lusts from the heart. Just let that sink in. It exhales, discovering Christ, seeing his love, exhales lust from the heart. It brightens the understanding and cleanses the affections. It warms the, warms the heart of with, with love and fills the heart with comfort. It quiets the conscience and purifies it. It gives the most sweet peace and tranquility to the spirit and withal brings such spiritual joy as is unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, how then should you admire the riches of the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ unto you? I just want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ today, you came to the right verse. You're meeting a a God who crucified his only begotten son for enemies. How do you know that? Because he rose from the dead. That's how you know that. He proved it. you know Christ, this is going to be some of the best familiar words to your heart. And if you don't, I want you to stand outside and say, wow, would I like to be a part of that? Paul says in Romans 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, come on, he loved to the end. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will possibly put a, put a gap, put a splinter between us and Christ? And he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Will tribulation, will that do it? Will that do, uh, uh, separate us from God's love in Christ? Will, will distress, will persecution, will famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In other words, if the world is cruel to me, won't that surely demonstrate that Jesus has stopped loving me? Just as it is written, now he goes back and grabs Old Testament authority. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all, here it is, these things, in all our trials and everything that makes us doubt the love of Christ, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who, here it is again, loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Where is that? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's called good news. And if you want to be a part of that kind of love, I want to invite you to turn from your sins and invite the Savior to be the Lord of your life. What kind of fool would say no to that kind of love? What kind of fool would say no to the love of God in Christ? What kind of fool would say no, I don't want the forgiveness of sins? What kind of fool would say no, I don't want to experience joy in heaven with all the saints and with God and with Christ, with his precious spirit? I don't want that. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and you want those things, he is the treasure. You come to him and you receive his benefits. Now, here's the challenge in a church like ours is we have, we have a lot of people who um, have been around church for a long time. And I just want to encourage you to do exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 
13 says, test yourself to see in your, if you're in the faith, examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that, here it is, Jesus Christ is in you. There's that love, unless indeed you fail the test. Set aside hypocrisy, set aside pride, and embrace the one who died for your soul. If this is uh, new to you, I'd love to talk to you. There are people around you who'd love to talk to you. Um, We'd love to introduce you to our Savior, the one who has a love that will not let us go. For all of eternity, we're going to try to do exactly what Mr. Lehman instructed us to do, to write the love of God with ink filled from the ocean on parchment and sky to sky. We would drain the whole ocean we would drain it dry in our efforts to talk about the love of Christ. If you know him, let the love of Christ be on your lips, on your meditation, your conversations. Just tell people what kind of loving Savior you have who loves his own how long to the end with no fickleness. Let's pray together. Father, I'm... uh, I'm transfixed with the wonder of your love, knowing my own heart and the the depth of my sin, the habits of my depravity, the doubts of my heart, and yet your love is inseparable because of your promise. We believe, Lord Jesus, that you knew of your death. We affirm that you predicted it with specificity and precision. We believe and we, we love the fact that you loved us, especially knowing what you know with your divine omniscience. We would say the only words that can come from our heart, which seem so insufficient, and that's thank you, So sanctify our minds. Give us thoughts and affections for you this week in a way that will be contagious. Speak of your excellencies to those who we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen.